welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, good day and welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and also found on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras, and today I'm joined by Dr. Joe Boot. If you've been tracking with us the past couple of weeks, you'll know that uh, after a couple of weeks of preliminary uh, sort of ground clearing and uh, ethical uh, contextualization, uh, we are now today getting into our series on the Ten Commandments, and that's going to begin uh, with the first of these. We'll, we'll uh, get uh, get deeper into uh, into that very shortly. Before we begin, a couple of quick housekeeping announcements. Two Ezra Institute programs are coming up this spring that we're uh, very much looking forward to. They're both happening in the United States. The first is the H. Evan Runner International Academy for Cultural Leadership. That's happening May 7th through 17th in Chatsworth, Georgia. And then shortly after that, May 21st to 24th, the Christianity and Culture Colloquium. And uh, that'll be in Deerwood, Minnesota. Both of those programs, uh, you can find out more about them. You can uh, apply or register at ezrainstitute.com. And there's uh, lots of details there. If you send us an email at info at ezrainstitute.com, uh, any of us here would be very happy to uh, to talk through what those programs are about and more, more about uh, what, uh, what you should expect uh, if you were to attend either of them. Or both, as the case may be. Do both, Ryan. And, yeah, do both. I understand you're you're doing both. <laughs> I think so. All right. Well, I there's uh, there's some incentive, or uh, yeah, let's leave it there. Let's. There's some incentive. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, <laughs> finally, this is uh, this is your last week to get the Heidelberg Diary at a discount at Ezra Press. Uh, this has been our book of the month for January, uh, as well as for part of December, uh, being a, a daily devotional that many people like to, uh, to begin at the beginning of the year. So get that uh, this week at EzraPress.com. Next week, next month in February, uh, well, there's going to be a, a new book of the month, and there'll be a, a discount there. We'll tell you more about it uh, in, the, uh, in the week ahead. So that's EzraPress.com. Heidelberg Diary is on sale this week and goes back to regular price afterwards. All right, let's uh, let's get into our discussion here, and we're going to start, as I said, with uh, the first of the Ten Commandments. These are found in a couple of places throughout Scripture. We're going to read them here where they're first delivered. This is Exodus twenty uh, verses one through three. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And Joe, as we were talking uh, just before the show, w- one of the things that uh, that we need to, I guess, highlight and uh, explain here is the distinction yeah, amongst different schools of ethics, uh, and specifically... Uh, the uh, the Western philosophical tradition, as uh, as we've received from 
Aristotelian and Platonic philosophy versus the biblical and Christian doctrine of revealed law. Mm-hmm. So we, we've had, uh, you've, you've, you've talked about ethics in a previous episode, but let's, uh, let's get down into, into the distinctions of, of these two traditions and how it situates uh, God's law. Well, it's worth um, saying at the outset, as as you say, as we sort of get into the first commandment today, uh, to think about the, in a certain sense, the the, the radical nature and character of uh, Christian ethical teaching in um, an unbelieving world, and even in the pagan context into which this was originally given. Um, there is a there's a unique character to the Christian understanding of of morality of of ethics that is that's that's really important to notice. So about um, 600 BC uh, in Miletus, a new intellectual uh, movement emerged, which we have come in the West to call a philosophy. Um, philosophy just meaning the the love of wisdom, and uh, it was arguably a sort of continuation of the sort of wisdom reflections of the ancient Near East. And it came to this kind of flowering in, uh, in Greek culture. And uh, the, the concern of the Greeks was to uh, understand the world. And um, uh, initially, their main concerns were with what we would call metaphysics, with understanding and describing nature and trying to grapple with it, but uh, later developed into a a significant concern with ethics. How does one live? And philosophy almost became a way of thinking about um, how to live in the world. What was the good life? What was the true, the good and the beautiful? And Mm -hmm. all kinds of um, traditions, various sort of uh, traditions emerged within that context from uh, Plato's school to the, the sophists and the cynics. Uh, but they all shared um, something in common, and that was the belief, really, that human beings uh, were autonomous and that they were a law unto themselves. And that what we can know about how to live, what we can know about ethics, ultimately derives from human beings as um Protagoras once famously uh, put it, you know, man is the measure of all things. Um, how uh, Protagoras was to know that uh, it w- was um, it is a problem. Um, and <laughs> both the both the rationalistic and the irrationalistic elements of uh, humanistic uh, thinking really uh, emerge very early in in Greek thought, the notion that on the one hand, it's rationalistic, man's mind, man's reason is going to be the measure of all things, including ethical life, and determine what's true, good, and and beautiful in that aesthetic sense. Um, But at the same time, it's obviously an arbitrary assertion. There is no way that that, uh, Protagoras could possibly know that. And so within the arbitrariness, uh, of course, it led to and, and there emerged in, in Greece various forms of scepticism and, and, and um, the sophists who were sceptical that uh, we could really develop uh, a true understanding of these things. The problem with the a lot of Greek thought was that in the end, when 
uh, man's mind seemed unable to plumb the depths of all of reality. It didn't lead to the to a abandonment of the idea of autonomy. Um, it was simply suggested that well, the world is not um, exhaustively rational. The universe can be irrational, and then therefore. Um, where the human mind is going to encounter things it can't fully explain because uh, it's by nature irrational. And of course, for many of the ancients, there were various powers, various gods, a kind of polytheism um, that was there, was an undercurrent, even amongst the, the Greek philosophers. You see it there in Acts 17, as Paul encounters the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, he sees their temples filled with idols um, and so although some of the Greek philosophers were famously accused of atheism for not worshipping and honouring the Greek gods, many of them had philosophy, uh, this rationalistic intellectual movement alongside their uh, worship of all kinds of gods and powers and, and forces. So into the mm. midst of, um, of that, of course, the Lord Jesus uh, takes us back to the, the law of God um, and what you've read there in Exodus, of course, and again, it's there present in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And uh, Jesus, our Lord, quotes from the law uh, repeatedly is a very different view of of ethical life. And this is the distinctive that we're coming to now with the with the Ten Commandments is that here we have uh, law that is um, above man. Uh, it's mm -hmm. God law for man. It's for his created order, it's for his creatures, and it comes to us from an external source. Um, we cannot, like the, the, the modern philosophers, absolutize our subjectivity, um, which again, they get from the Greeks and say, well, it's just what is um, in us uh, and what emerges from perhaps our social arrangements. So very quickly, if you look at um, two competing ideas, you know, Karl Marx, perhaps the most um, influential, at least, uh, philosopher, certainly in the sphere of politics of the last couple of hundred years. Uh, ethical and moral values are, are really uh, about uh, reduced to culture and to class, classes of people within society. And so moral codes are for Marxism merely the uh, effort of the ruling class to hold another class down. So there is no, in that sense, um, Marx is both subjectivist, but also relativistic uh, in the sense that he, so he's relativist and then he's highly rationalistic in the attempt to impose this on reality, which is the irony. Um, mm -hmm. But relativistic in the sense that it's it, it emerges from the ruling class and their attempt to hold others down. It's about class struggle. And then you've got the existentialists like Nietzsche and those that followed him saying that uh, something uh, fairly similar, that it's all about the will to power. So there's no objective external law that has validity that comes to us, that is for us from God, uh, but rather it's about the human subject and their social organization, their will, the will to power, domination and control. And of course, politically, that led to two movements in the 20th century. Communism, which said that essentially a so-called objective moral law was the uh, the product of a, a ruling class. 
Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, within with Nietzsche's thought as it, the, the idea of the Superman as it emerged then in, in uh, Nazism in the 20th century was that the, these moral laws of the, of, the, of the Hebrews, this slave people, uh, these stammering nomads, uh, was in fact uh, the, a slave people's morality um, and was something that was holding culture back down, holding culture back, stopping the strong from dominating. And that's a fascinating thought, isn't it? That on two schools of thought within the Western tradition that deny external law from the outside of God speaking to man in this unique way and and rooting themselves in the subject, the human subject, and saying, well, man's going to be the measure of all things individually or collectively. You have one that concludes God's law is a slave morality for the weak, uh, preventing the strong from taking society and culture where it needs to go. And the other, on the Marxist end, says it's the law of the, the dominant. It's the law of the ruling class that's seeking to hold down the oppressed. Well, biblically, as we're going to see now, it's neither. Uh, mm-hmm. It is the law of God um, for our good and for our blessing. And so this is the great distinction that's important to point out straight away is this unique moment where the living God himself is speaking directly in this instance that you've read in Exodus there, not even through Moses um, to the people, but God actually speaking and uh, giving his law to man. And uh, that is therefore radically different from the pagan tradition that comes to us in the West through the Greeks. I don't. I want to get on to that, uh, and I don't want to dwell uh, too long uh, sidetracking this. But it's also interesting that uh, amongst uh, Marxism and existentialism, there the third uh, sort of system or approach that's very popular that actually buys into this same uh, dichotomy is classical liberalism, the idea of mm-hmm. a, a bare democracy, yes. and we've you've talked about that elsewhere. It's uh, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God, yeah. where there is, you know, uh, supposed consensus, supposed um, where r- rulers govern by consent, but mm-hmm. it's still appealing to an imminent source for authority. Yeah, I'm glad you've picked that up because we mustn't we mustn't miss that. I uh, I think probably even more critical than what I've said so far because. In one sense, for for those of us who are Christians, uh, if we're listening to this, um, we can easily identify in one sense the Marxist and the existential atheistic uh, movements as uh, being just that, atheistic, openly anti-God, in many cases, Mm -hmm. virulently anti-God. Sartre, as far as ethics were concerned, thought that hell was other people. So uh, the... The, the 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 thing that tends to be more acceptable to people is the one that you've mentioned the the the, the liberal the classical liberal tradition tradition and i think we can say that you know there's a number of influences there but one of the key ones was uh, jean-jacques rousseau mm-hmm. uh, who in a certain sense is the the culmination in political thought of the results of the humanistic enlightenment and um the father of romanticism um yes. and you know for him, imagination uh, and emotion 
um, within the people coming together um, creates its own social order, as you say, by the, the general will. Uh, and of course, that involves the, the individual surrendering themselves to this abstract general will. And uh, Rousseau ends up, um, despite his um, radical democracy, with a, a totalitarian idea of the state. Um, and uh, but that that notion of vox populi, vox dei, it's, it's the voice of the collective is the voice of God. Um, is absolutely vital because I think some Christians get far too comfy with the notion that somehow liberalism uh, is basically the Christian perspective on uh, uh, on man's ethical, uh, social, and political life, and we That's can right. just ba baptize these liberal ideas as Christian, and we can't. We can't. We have to uh, look at the uniqueness of what the word of God is saying to us, that it is, it is not man individually, collectively, in terms of his class, uh, in terms of his will to power, in terms of his reason, that uh, gives moral order, moral law, guides our ethical lives. It is God himself who speaks. And um, that third leg, as you said on the stool, absolutely critical as we come to the, the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So as, as we... As we come to the Ten Commandments, as you've said, uh, what uh, what is it, or how 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 do they realize themselves? How are they realized in real life? Uh, where 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 do the differences show up between the broad Western tradition, as you've just explained, and the the Mosaic Law? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we actually in our series on Thomas Aquinas, um, when we looked at um, natural law, and if people are interested, they can go back and, and listen to some of that in the previous podcast series, saw how uh, in an attempted synthesis with this pagan idea of, of rooting man's thought and his moral thinking in human reason, um, developed concepts of, of, of natural law. And we also saw actually in that series that these um, natural uh, laws as they emerged, um, depending on which era, which um, uh, social context uh, the natural law was spoken of, ended up justifying the status quo of those cultural situations, whether it was um, slavery or subjugation of women uh, and other things that the Bible, biblical law, wouldn't tolerate. Um, so uh, it's interesting how when when even if we try and, and, and do what the Western tradition has done, which is synthesize Christianity, biblical faith with um, Greek thought on ethics, you really end up in this, in this um, we, I think we could probably call it deontological. It's, there is an idea that there is law that is somehow transcends us, but it ends mm -hmm. up floating somewhere in an abstract con uh, context of reason and um, sort of um, idealist conceptions of eternal law, um, which uh, struggle to be personalized. And one of the things that's probably most important to, to note about biblical law as, as we encounter it there in scripture is its particularity. Uh, it's, it, you know, the command to, to love God and to, to love our neighbor, and we'll come to that in just a moment, 
as we mm-hmm. reflect on the significance of the first commandment uh is uh is 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 concrete and what the what god's law god's moral law expresses is the importance of particularizing of the of the immediacy of people's circumstances and and of the immediacy of dealing with real and actual people in the real world in real circumstances within time and within history um and applying god's law in time in history to those uh, varied circumstances Whereas um, the uh, the ancient philosophers did tend to talk much more in abstractions um, about ideals and ideas and eternal mm-hmm. laws, uh, and even in the modern world now, in in contemporary culture, we tend uh, to talk in a similar way. In, in the Marxist tradition, it's abstract classes of people or group or, or abstract groups of the oppressed, um, uh, and. Uh, even if we talk in a more um, uh, uh, existential way, um, when people talk about um, the uh, oppression and uh, the realization of themselves and so on and so forth and their choice, um, the, 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 the way in which this gets interpreted ethically, socially, culturally always seems to be in terms of abstract groups of people, often in terms of an alphabet soup. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and very rarely comes down to real people in the particularity of immediate circumstances and what is actually happening in their, in their real lives. Rather, you've got this abstract idea of equality and instead of keeping equality as C.S. Lewis exactly where it belongs, which is in mathematics, uh, it gets brought over into ethical, political, cultural, social life, where everybody is being reduced to zero. And that's called love. And so God right. here of, of his law of love, which is what we're dealing with in Exodus 20, to what we're dealing with in, in sorry, Exodus, um, uh, tw- yeah, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, is God's law of love. And it goes beyond merely what we might call natural uh, love, where everybody can generally relate to a sense of natural love for parents or children, uh, a natural love for perhaps your country, um, your people, and so on. This love to God and love to neighbor pushes us out beyond ourselves and self-interest to the interests of God and the other. And, uh, and that's why it's concrete, and, and that's why it's so radical. Um, and of course, mm-hmm. God's argument with his people, um, as he stresses the importance of his law, is it's not, this is not simply about obedience to, an, to the idea of an arbitrary external command. This is actually about one's love relationship to God. This is a. Right. It's it's about our loving response to God, and uh, a response of love to neighbor, that's grounded in our being image bearers of God, and so it begins in that sense with um, the reality of creation itself, and uh, our our being image bearers, and this is what it means now to to love God and neighbor as His image bearers. Hmm. And that uh, that leads really well into sort of a uh, a more 
a close read of the text of this first commandment, which I'd like to, uh, to move into. I'll read it again because it's real quick. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is a, it's, it's a personal identifier. It's, it's this God. It's not some other God. It's this God who did a particular act at a particular point in history. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the, the other thing just to, to notice about this is that this law begins, this is a, this is a matter of worship, right? This is law, law yep. begins with worship. And that, uh, that maybe anticipates part of the, uh, part of the answer. But one of the questions that, uh, that I wanted to, to deal with is that, uh, what, you know, why are, why are there exactly 10 commandments? Uh, and why are they given in the order that they're given in? And why does it start with, uh, with this one in particular? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a few questions in there and a few, a few thoughts to uh, tease out uh, while you were mm-hmm. speaking. Um, uh, I thought uh, of a, of a good illustration of this, the, the way that um, it's, it's so personalized to the people. I am the Lord, your God. Yes. Uh, who brought you out of the land of, of, slavery out of the land of Egypt. This is something that uh, in uh, you don't see, of course you don't see it in pagan religions that don't have a personal God who has revealed himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously in Confucianism or Buddhism or, or Taoism or any of these things, but also in the copies of Christianity and Islam. Right. There is no, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. Uh within Islam, Islamic Sharia. Um, it's a, that's a cobbling together, a borrowing from here and there of a, of, of, of a law code that um, is not based out of covenant relationship. There's no sense of, of um, Allah delivering anybody. The God, he is so remote, he's unknowable. So there is a remarkable thing here in this, what we might call the historical prologue. Uh, of the of the commandment, so the structure actually is you've got um, because the I think we mentioned just in passing last week that the the way in which the the context of the commandment as it comes and we see it right here in this first commandment is in the form of a treaty or or a covenant. And That's um, right. in the ancient Near East, there there were what we can call um, suzerain treaties. Uh, this was common, for example, amongst the Hittites. And the basic idea of a, of a suzerain treaty was that a, a, a king or a lord, a, invariably a conquering lord, uh, would make a people his, his vassals, and he would com- the king would commit to certain things, and they would commit to fealty, to loyalty, to, to uh, service in... in, in uh, uh, response to uh, protection um, and provision and so forth from the from the suzerain so the the, the form is that in which God uh, delivers this to the Israelites is in the form uh, basically of, of an ancient kind of treaty that's uh, you know inc- incredibly informative because this is radically personal uh, uh, this is not just any God, this is not a, an abstract God. This is not a God who uh, is an unknown God, an unknowable God. 
but this is the Lord your God, Yahweh. So a treaty would begin with the name of the king. So the, mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments begin with the name of the Lord. I am the Lord God. So Yahweh is his name. So I'm the Lord God. And, and in this historical prologue, um, what did he do? Well, I brought you out. I delivered you. It was an act of grace. So the giving of the law is predicated on, on this relationship with the king. And it's the result of his victory. Just like uh, an ancient king would have had a victory over people and they become his vassals. God's victory was over Egypt, over Pharaoh and all of his armies. And he brings his people through to victory and he delivers them. And he says his name and he says, I am the Lord, your God, I've, I've delivered you. And so what follows is, of course, grace, because it's a treaty between a greater and a lesser. Um, and the law, of course, comes with um, stipulations. So you read it there in verse three. This is an exclusive covenant loyalty. Um, mm -hmm. And we're then given in verses four through 17 in the Ten Commandments the content of love. So there's a love relationship. It's a covenant of love relationship. And these are, this is the content of what that love relationship is going to look like. Um, and then of course there are blessings and cursings for obedience and disobedience, just as in those ancient treaties, there would have been sanctions associated with a failure to keep uh, the, the, the terms of the covenant. So right. what, what follows is, um, uh, 10 commandments. And so uh, there is a sense in which this treaty, this document is a, a legal document. Uh, it's a political document, but it's also a loving covenantal communication between the Lord and the people that he's chosen to be on mission uh, for him in terms of his kingdom and his purposes and he requires loyalty of them and he promises to be loyal and faithful um, in return and um, I think the second part of what you were asking there was well you know why why 10 commandments uh, we said in passing uh, last week that uh, the two copies the 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 the, the, the two tablets would, yeah. would not, as most of us have, have imagined, just because of popular usage, have been sort of five or four commandments on one and six on the other, or five and five, but rather they would have been two copies of the law, two copies of the Ten Commandments, representing a copy for the king, the Lord, Yahweh, and a copy for the people, mm -hmm. his, his servants, his, his vassals. And those two copies... Um, are taken and of course they are put in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle in the most holy place. Why Why both copies? Well, because that was the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle, yes. the holy place, the holiest of holies in the Ark. That's where the presence of God is manifest. So in that sense, the tabernacle represented both the vassal people and the king because that was his throne. The His throne room was the holy of holies. And so you have two copies, one for God, one for the uh, for the Israelites. Incredibly symbolic of this um, relationship. Um, why are there ten commandments? Well, it's interesting. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who 
once said, if we will not live by the Ten Commandments, we'll be governed by the Ten Thousand Commandments. That's right. Isn't that the truth? Um, the I think probably the best explanation biblically is that uh, actually what the scripture says there in Exodus is that God spoke the ten words. And again, remember that this part of the Torah, this part of God's instruction, is not being uh, mediated through Moses or any of the, his cases um, that he deals with practically in terms of applications of this standing law. Um, this is the voice of God himself. And remember mm. that um, it would be good for our, our listeners to recall that God actually inscribes these commands on tablets of stone with his own finger. Now, now think about that, because... This is the the only part of scripture, the only part of scripture that we can actually say uh, did not involve a human vehicle, uh, hmm. uh, a human uh, a scribe or um, uh, a human subject who was part of its. Yes, Moses was there as mediator, but. We the, the 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 scriptures, as most Christians are aware, were not given by some kind of Islamic dictation theory, right? Um, or it's not an eternal book that has existed in all eternity next to God. Mm. Uh, it it comes through human authors in various times in various places places moved by the Holy Spirit who inspired all of Scripture. But at this particular moment, as God is giving his law, which is a reflection of his creation ordinances and mirrors his crea fundamental creation ordinances, it's God's finger. God writes this himself. It's God's own voice. And that echoes uh, the book of Genesis um, and the creation account, because there God speaks also 10 words. Mm. Let there be. Let there be. And... Uh, God said, God said, God said, I should say. And um, so in, in the book of Genesis, God speaks the 10 creation words and calls everything into being. As he says, and, and, and God said, let there be. So God is speaking the 10 words and creates all things. Creation ordinances, creation law is established. And here, because this is the very... Um, that the fabric of creation itself in a certain sense now is being reiterated as it's, as it's finds its nucleus of meaning within this ethical moral aspect of our lives uh, in, in the love of God and love of neighbor. God again speaks with his very own voice and writes this into uh, the tablets of stone. And, and I think we need to take that on board because of the sheer significance of that. Uh, creation and the giving of the law it's the very voice of god and uh god at creation calling all things into being establishing his law for creation and at the um, on mount sinai establishing his law and the fact that this law is a covenant of grace with israel uh from the greater to the lesser is a part of their mission their calling to be a light to the nations 
Um, the fact that it's uh, to be Israel's loving response to, to the king that they obey, that doesn't mean that this law that God speaks was only for the Israelites. I mean, the whole mission of the of the Hebrews, of the people of Israel, the people of God, is that this law, uh, this good news of both atonement as set forth in the tabernacle and God's righteousness, God's holiness as set forth in the law would be Deuteronomy 4, a, mm. uh, a, 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 a model for all the nations that they would look at it and say, who has a law like this law? Who has a God like this God? Now, but what we are told is that Israel had an extra special reason for obeying it. Um, this this law that is is both in creation ordinance and now in on the tablets of stone, and of course later written into the tablets of our hearts in the newer covenant. Um, mm. All men and nations are obligated to it. That's why God sent Jonah to the heart of the Assyrian Empire to preach repentance in Nineveh and. Amos to preach to the uh, pagan nations around by the standards of God's law. Um, the Canaanites are judged um, uh, for their wickedness and evil, not by some arbitrary, arbitrary standard of the Canaanites, but by the standards of God's law. But Israel had this extra special reason for obeying the 10 words. I am the Lord, your God, who delivered mm. you. And that's a reminder to us, I think, as Christians, that we have an extra special reason for obeying God's law. And that is that Christ uh, is our Passover lamb. He is our redeemer. He called us out of slavery uh, uh, from darkness into the kingdom of light. And he accomplished our exodus, as uh, we see in as Jesus speaks with Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration. They spoke of the exodus he was about to accomplish. And that's why mm. the exodus which the Ten Commandments begin with, as you've read them in verse three there, we have that reminder of the Exodus is the paradigmatic event of deliverance in scripture that the New Testament refers us back to constantly in terms of Christ's deliverance. He is our, our Passover lamb, Paul says, is sacrificed for us. And we have been delivered and, and, and taken out. God has, has, has had victory over principalities, powers, and all darkness at the cross and he has delivered us to obey the king. And we are now his vassals, his servants of King Jesus. And we are to serve his kingdom. And of course, he went up onto the mountain and interpreted the law on what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So I think that's why we have the the, the ten and the, mm. the 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 order, of course, is in a certain sense is God's mystery. But we can look at it and say this is that the first four commandments deal specifically with our relationship with God. And interestingly, I think with worship, uh, because when you look at the uh, commandments themselves, uh, the first commandment deals with the object of worship. The second with the manner of our worship, you shall not have idols. The third with the language of worship, because we're told not to misuse the name of the Lord. And the fourth with the time of worship. Remember the Sabbath day, um, to keep it holy. So the first four are focused on our duties and obligations toward the love of God. And the next six are focused on our duty and obligation out of love for God to love our neighbor. And uh, so we have that kind of order and it gives us the right order because without the right ordering of love, as Augustine would say, 
um, we we cannot uh, understand a, a truly biblical vision of ethics because the love to God and neighbor are so intertwined and involved in one another. When we're loving our neighbor, we're loving God. And when we truly love God, we're also going to be loving our neighbor. And so we have that order, God, neighbor, um, and uh, Jesus brings it to a, to a glorious summary um, in, um, in Matthew 22, which we'll come to in just a moment. But I want to give you a chance to respond to any of that. This is a, this is a rich and really inexhaustible conversation. There are, I've got more sort of follow-up than could ever really be, be processed and I'm, sh- I'm sure that our listeners will as well. So I just, uh, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. We'll mention it next week. But please uh, send us in, send us in your questions. If you've got, uh, if you've got questions about any of the details about uh, this, uh, this show, about scripture, about the Ten Commandments, uh, we would love to, uh, to hear that. And we'll try to deal with those uh, in uh, subsequent episodes. So please, uh, please do send those in. That's uh, info at ezrainstitute.com and we'll, make, we'll uh, receive those and make sure to, uh, to go over them. Excellent, yeah. The, Joe, Joe, the thing that, that sort of struck me as, uh, as you're describing this and as you're describing the, the, the uh, beginning of this, uh, the linchpin of this as man's relation to God is that uh, we... It's it's common and legitimate in uh, in contemporary Christianity to make the distinction between sins and crimes, right? There you can sin uh, against God, uh, but that's uh, that's you're not gonna get charged or go to jail for it in civil society in uh, for many things, and that it seems like in the Ten Commandments that distinction is whether I want to say that it's blurred or it doesn't apply, but as I think about things like, you shall have no other gods before me, well, how are you going to prosecute that in terms of, of civil justice? Uh, in ter- if, you want to talk, if we're talking about the commandments as law, it suggests something public about, uh, about this question of, of God and worship. Mm-hmm. Well, the Ten Commandments are as they come to us and as they function within the the whole instruction uh the torah um do have this special and unique place as we said because first they are delivered by god himself um mm-hmm. and not mediated um and because they function as the fundamental principles and um so in one sense you could say yes that um sin and crime sort of blur uh in this because you know you can um you can rob god for example you can steal from god malachi Mm -hmm. is clear about that we can we can rob god um of his tithes and offerings um but uh there's no there's no social penalty for that um we can be covetous and and um uh be sinning against the lord but there's no there's no civil penalty for that so when we um, when we look at the 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 second table of the law and the six commandments that uh, speak directly about neighbor, we'll have I think an opportunity to tease out some of the detail about uh, the what does become a distinction in scripture between um, 
sin because all violations of sin is lawlessness. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's um, it, sin is a uh, a defiance um, of God. It's a it's a, it's a revolutionary defiance. It's a refusal to be. Um, Interestingly, I, I actually quite like the way Kierkegaard puts it. He, he says it's a it's a, it's a defiant refusal to be oneself. That is hmm. oneself as as we've been created in the image of God. Um, so we can actually rebel against this uh, order that God has established. How we're to relate to Him, how we relate to others, and in so doing, we're refusing to be what it means to be human. Um, and uh, but it does become uh, clear that some vi- violations of some of these commandments um, must carry a temporal, not just an eternal consequence within social order and within civil society. And as we see the applications of the standing law, so we have the standing law, the fundamental principles, and then we start to see what we can call the other instruction, the rest of the Torah, the case laws as they emerge. Um, we see how these are actually applied and um, there's good and necessary consequence or we might call the general equity of those applications, those those case laws that are applying the Ten Commandments that become important in that debate about the civil order. But just in terms of this particular commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, there are certain civil consequences that would apply uh, in a Christian society. Um, so the the fundamental difference between the pagan world and what God says here in this first commandment to Israel is that the pagan world uh, was polytheistic. Uh, there were many gods and goddesses. And um, not only in the, 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 the supernatural sense of the idea of um, of personages, deities, whether they be demons or deified men. Um, uh, Paul talks about demons being behind uh, many of the idols of the ancient world. Um, however we want to describe those, the the, the great difference is, and of course, the, the, the state as well was viewed as, as a god in the ancient world that was often tied to the worship of, of, of idols. Um, pagan culture was polytheistic. It believed in a multiverse. There were many gods, many laws. Different peoples would have different gods, different laws. Um, that's one of the reasons why in the ancient world, if, if, a, if a great empire conquered another people, they would carry off their gods and place them in their own temples as conquered gods. Um, and uh, again, in the in the great pagan empires, there were vassal states, there were vassal peoples, but those peoples, by and large, retained their own gods and their own laws. Uh, it was the the whole idea of the of of the modern uh, of a of a state which was a true res publica, which had one law, emerges directly from. The Bible and from the Hebraic Christian tradition, uh, because here there is only one God. There's not polytheism. There's not a multiverse. It's God's creation. It's a universe governed by one law with one God whose word is law, who is the absolute personality, 
for whom the only person for whom we could say the world is a system uh, comprehended in its totality because created and governed by him. And because we can have no other gods before him, uh, we the, the biblical law cannot admit another god and therefore cannot admit another law order because the living god gives his law and he's the creator and he's the ruler and the governor of all things and therefore he has one truth one law now that law needs to be concretized it needs to be um applied uh in a variety of different contexts, but there is one law and there is one God. And that's why in Israel there was one law for the resident as well as the stranger and the alien. And so from the civil point of view, uh, there were in Israel um, civil penalties for false prophets who rose up to try and drag the people away into idolatry and false religion. Um, Think about the time of Solomon for example, um, where um, because of his many wives, because of his um, uh, polygamy, which God had forbidden, um, and of course Solomon in the end loses the kingdom because of it, Moloch worship is reintroduced, which um, after Solomon's time involved passing one's own children through the fire, child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... The, the 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 punishments that Israel faced were very real when uh, they there was an attempt to introduce uh, and drag the people away into idolatry. Now this doesn't apply in any kind of missionary situation. This this wouldn't this and and no person uh, alien living in Israel was forced to sacrifice and worship the living God in the way that the Israelite was. But there was one standing law and uh, incitement to idolatry carried um, serious uh, civil penalties because it would be the same as um, uh, a Marxist state allowing a, a revolutionary law order or, or a, a constitutional monarchy um, allowing the overthrow of the king or a republic allowing some kind of, I mean, a similar thing is happening right now in, in, in Europe where Sharia law is increasingly being established in um, formerly Christian lands, and therefore you have a rival God and a rival law order, and the result is social chaos and unrest and um, serious uh, uh, social cultural problems because a new God and a new law order is introduced. So um, even with some of these laws where we'd imagine, well, you know, what is the civil implication of that? Because we've in the West got, uh, in the modern church, had such a mindset that worship um is something that goes on between your ears mm-hmm. and only in your heart, but doesn't really have any public consequences, uh, we would often not see the significance of this. But having no other gods before the Lord, of course, begins in our own hearts. Of course, it begins with our own personal faithfulness and devotion. But uh, as God gave it to a people as king to his vassals, it meant God is a jealous God. Uh, and he is he he and Paul actually quotes that and, and says that God uh, ha, has a um, he, Paul said that he had a godly jealousy for, because he betrothed the church to one husband. 
And um, that's the image that God uses about his relationship to Israel um, frequently is of the Mm -hmm. husband and often a jilted husband who has been betrayed because Israel kept committing adultery. And so um, God, in the end, exacted his own penalty on Israel that was a social penalty, finally, for their um, adultery. Um, And uh, I guess, you know, the the next logical question uh, would be, well, you know, what if there was a Christian culture today? Would that Christian culture um, tolerate uh, idolatry, polytheism? Because today right. the West has become no longer Christendom, but um, it's a polytheistic order. Uh, and um, it's one of the reasons we're seeing such tremendous social decay. So a truly Christian order uh, would have one law for the stranger and the alien, one God, and therefore one law order um, and uh, that would honor the living God. And that's why we had until very recently in, in the West blasphemy laws um, that protected how we spoke about uh, the Lord. And um, we wouldn't have dreamt of introducing Sharia law and a rival concept, a rival God and a rival law order uh, into our social order. Right. And you were... Uh... You mentioned adultery there. You mentioned uh, several of the other commandments, and it's just just a fascinating observation to see how how uh, it closely they hang together. How how one logically and uh, necessarily follows from the other, and from this question of worship that uh, that we begin yes. with. So, Joe, that's uh, that's all the time we've got for uh, this discussion today, unless you have. Any other closing comments? So I'll uh, I'll give you uh, give you the last word here. Thanks, Ryan. Well, let me just say one last thing about the um, the the commandment, and I'll tie it into something you said earlier when you told people book of the month, a last mm. opportunity to get the discount, uh, the Heidelberg Diary, which is a, an exposition by one of our fellows of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's right. And um, it, it'd be nice, I think, to to conclude with. Uh, the Heidelberg's catechism um, question and answer on the first commandment. Um, Yeah, that's a great idea. uh, What does God require in the first commandment? And um, uh, remember, I I just wanted to tie this in to uh, what we read in in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we often would say that at the beginning of communion. When we take communion, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, for example, would would frequently in in the liturgy begin uh, with the Shema. Um, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Um, and the scripture goes on, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall write them, you shall teach them diligently to your children and so on. So we have there the statement that this is ultimately about uh, the the love of God with the totality of our being rooted in the heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with everything that you are, because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is why polytheism, many laws, many gods, 
is unacceptable to the Christian. And uh, Jesus echoes this in Matthew uh, chapter 22. And we read beginning in verse 36. Uh, a lawyer came to him and asked him the question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. In other words, Jesus there is really interpreting, uh, is, is quoting Deuteronomy 6 and mm. interpreting the first commandment for us that you shall have no other gods before me means just that. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with heart, with, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second is like it, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so the Heidelberg uh, catechism question number 94 is what does God require in the first commandment I think this is a beautiful succinct summary the answer is that on peril of my soul's salvation I avoid and flee all idolatry sorcery enchantments invocations of saints or of other creatures and that I rightly acknowledge the only true God trust in him alone with all humility, humility and patience and uh, in patience expect all good from him only and love, fear and honour him with my whole heart so as rather to renounce all creatures than to do the least thing against his will. Um, and of course, the, 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 the Westminster Larger Catechism expands upon this in almost exhaustive detail. It's almost like a devotional exercise to read the Westminster uh, Confessions explication of the first commandment. But the Heidelberg just summarizes it there so beautifully, I think, to um, acknowledge the only true God, trust in him alone with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only and love, fear and honor him with my whole heart. So as rather to renounce all creatures than to do the least thing against his will. Well, that's uh, if you've never uh, never experienced the Heidelberg Catechism before. That's a uh, that's a great introduction, and really commend it to you all. Joe, thanks for uh, thanks for leading us into that. As I said, this uh, this does no by no means exhaust uh, what could be said about the first commandment, and it may uh, may turn out that we get back to it at another in another episode. But for now, uh, I'm uh, really really content to uh, to leave our discussion there. This has been a great conversation, and for all of you listening, uh, we remind you that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. May God alone be glorified. And we'll look forward to being with you again next week. 